Welcome, Real America. I'm United States Congressman Matt Gates for coming from Florida's first congressional district here in New York. Today, Sean Hannity has the day off, and I will be your host. We're going to have some fun going over the breaking news of the day, some analysis, and do I have some fantastic guests for us today? My good friend Congressman Lee Zeldin joining us, John Solomon, we'll have Steve Bannon, Corey Lewandowski, and Congressman Louis Gohmert. And over the next few hours, we are going to be taking on the radical left's attacks on our institutions, our president, our votes, our country, and the nature of truth itself, and we are going to be fighting back. Again, this is U.S. Congressman Matt Gates guest hosting for Sean Hannity today. And one thing that Sean has taught me is that we got too many Republicans in Washington, D.C. specifically, who do not know how to fight in the era of Donald Trump. Too many of them say in their campaigns that they'll come and go courageously into Washington and take on the establishment. But when they get there, paralyzed by criticism, afraid of the mainstream media, and unwilling to seize the opportunity that is the Trump presidency, will not hear not today. We're going to be taking them on. And throughout the course of our program, I'll be breaking down the top 10 D.C. lies of 2019. That's right. We're going to point out the lies that you've been hearing from the politicians in Washington and others. And we're going to be demonstrating the proof so that as you go into 2020, you'll have all the information you need to defend our president, fight for our country and advocate for the values that have made our nation the envy of all of human civilization. I've got to say, it's a true honor for me to be guest hosting the show. I only had to promise to wash Sean Hannity's car three times, shine his shoes a few times, have the chance to be here, but super excited. And I've got to paint the scene for you. I'm here in New York City. I'm in the Sean Hannity studio. And there are two dramatic pieces of artwork that I think really encapsulate the moment we're in. First, you've got Barack Obama surrounded by the founding fathers on the White House lawn, and they're all looking dismayed and sad and concerned. And then there's just a regular American sitting on a bus bench, sort of slumped over, looking down, not optimistic about the future. And there is the defiant 44th President Barack Obama standing on what appear to be our nation's founding documents. And then just right next to that, you've got the alternate image. You've got the American people of all types, all different backgrounds, people who've served in our military, people who work in the great jobs in our country. And you've got President Donald Trump not standing on our founding documents, but standing on the head of the snake. And then that very same American worker is no longer slumped over, no longer looking down, but is planting a tree in the White House lawn emblematic of the future that we have if we move forward under the outstanding Trump presidency. So excited uh, to be closing out 2019 to look forward to 2020, and we certainly have a lot to look forward to. Again, I'll be breaking down D.C.'s top 10 lies of the year over the course of the show, and I've got to tell you, the last three years serving on the House Judiciary Committee, I have had a front row seat to the efforts by the radical left to delegitimize defame and destroy our transformational president, Donald Trump. And you have to ask yourself the question, why is it that those on the left are so unwilling to debate us? You know what you never see in America today? You never see someone from the left stand up and say, well, I think you're wrong. And here are the five or six reasons why. Here's the evidence. Here's the support. No, 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 no. They don't do that. 
If you don't sign up for this new agenda where we all got to eat kale and quinoa while flying around on our flatulent, free, non-gender-specific unicorn on our way to, like, the next Bernie Sanders drum circle or rain dance with Pocahontas, if you're not up for that, then all of a sudden you're part of the racist, sexist, xenophobe, deplatformed community that they're trying to throw us all. And I think Hillary Clinton probably summed it up when she just referred to all of us as the deplorables. Well, you know what? The deplorables, we fought back. We are coming together for the greatness of this country and for everyone who is here, for all of our great citizens, regardless of background, regardless of what you believe or who you love. Because in real America, we got a lot to be optimistic about. Wages are now rising at the fastest rate in a decade. More jobs created, and not just any jobs, we're seeing the productive sector of the American economy return. Manufacturing jobs. We're seeing all kind of opportunity. The economy and GDP growing. Trade deals being renegotiated. Imagine that. Our country actually utilizing the platform of trade not to make other countries rich, not to make other workers more prosperous, but to advance the cause of the American people, the American worker, and our economy. You know what? Other countries, they put themselves first. And I think it's great that we've got a president that puts America first. And instead of starting new wars all around the globe, sending our bravest patriots to fight in some of the most godforsaken places, President Trump is working to end the endless wars of prior generations. And we have never had a president more pro-Israel than Donald Trump. So super excited. What an awesome show we have. Again, Steve Bannon, Corey Lewandowski. We got the fighting class coming in to break down the news of the day and to make sure that we're ready for 2020. We got some breaking news here in New York. Jewish communities are experiencing shock and grief in the wake of anti-Semitic domestic terrorist attacks. I can tell you there is a sense of macabre that seems to have fallen over the city. We'll have Congressman Lee Zeldin on the program just shortly to talk about his reaction to this. And Congressman Zeldin has had some sharp words for people in politics, for New Yorkers in politics, who have not taken a tough enough stand, in his view, against the rising scourge of anti-Semitism. I have to say, coming from Pensacola, coming from uh, the Gulf Coast, Florida's first congressional district, it is a bit weird to feel the sense in this community of terrorism because it was my community just some weeks ago. There was the victim of a terrorist attack by a Saudi flight student who had come to our country, was learning how to fly our warplanes, and then uh, turned a weapon on U.S. service members. And so to be here in New York uh, with that feeling of, of terrorism in the air is something that weighs heavily on us, certainly. We've also seen heroics on display at the West Freeway Church of Christ, at a religious service in White Settlement, Texas, we saw an armed American, a, a, a volunteer security guard who had apparently been training and preparing for this moment, step forward and neutralize a shooter who would have done far more damage in White Settlement, Texas, had we not had the full complement of our Second Amendment rights. Within just hours of that attack in Texas, we saw all over the mainstream media, all over social media, the radical left reflexively calling for more gun control. Is that the answer? We'll have Congressman Louie Gohmert on the show later, and I suspect that Congressman Gohmert will share my view that the answer to the rising violence that we see in our country 
is not to make criminals out of law-abiding citizens. That law-abiding citizens taking personal responsibility over their own safety is a hallmark of America. It is something we must protect. And in White Settlement, Texas, it appears to have had a life-saving impact. A lot more to talk about. Barack Obama back in the news. Would he be on the Supreme Court? Would Biden put him there? We'll talk about that and break that down. And also some sad news. My friend and colleague John Lewis announcing that he has been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Congressman Lewis is a civil rights icon. He is a kind person with a rich perspective on life. In his statement that he released through his congressional website, he said that he wanted all of us to keep him in our prayers. We will certainly do that. Congressman Lewis, he said, while I am clear-eyed about the prognosis, doctors have told me that recent medical advances have made this type of cancer treatable in many cases, that treatment options are no longer as debilitating as they once were, and that I have a fighting chance. Though Congressman Lewis and I don't always vote the same way on the House floor, though we've got very different political views, I can tell you that John Lewis is one of the folks that I will be very proud to tell my own grandchildren that I had a chance to serve with in the United States Congress, marched at Selma, a true icon. And one thing I love about John Lewis, everybody's a brother, everybody's a sister. He greets everyone with great kindness and warmth, and I ask all of our listeners to join me in prayer for Congressman John Lewis as he goes on to his next stage in this fight. A lot more coming. Congressman Matt Gates here. Look me up on Twitter, at Rep Matt Gates. Find me on Facebook at YouTube, Congressman Matt Gates. Show will be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Radio Show. This is United States Congressman Matt Gates in for Sean today. And though Sean has the day off, breaking news does not. A lot of campaign buzz going on. And while I know we want to talk about the 2020 presidential campaign, the Senate is also a big part of the story in the upcoming election. And we'll see if Republicans look to expand the Senate map. Is Corey Lewandowski going to run for the Senate in the great state of New Hampshire? We will have him on and we'll ask him that question. Also, we got some Democrats even looking past 2020 to 2024, a new Politico story out saying AOC, your future presidential candidate on the Democratic side. You've got the California Young Democrats president, Will Kennedy Rodriguez, saying very pointedly, the future of the Democratic Party isn't Pete Buttigieg. It is AOC. Get ready, America 2024. I don't know. I kind of think AOC running in 2024 would be interesting, dynamic. And you know what? I think it would pretty much guarantee a Republican victory. I am not certain that AOC picks up a lot of support between the Hudson River and the Sierra Nevada Mountains. I think probably on the opposite ends of those, she might do all right. But the Republican Party under Donald Trump has absolutely been turned into the party of the working woman and man in this country. I think that our America First movement has life well beyond the Trump presidency, and I cannot wait to be a part of it. I do not think President AOC is in our future. But back to 2020, the news out now, the Warren campaign seeming to hit the fundraising skids. $17 million reported. That's down from the $25 million that was expected. And Bernie Sanders out with a new health report back on the trail. So Warren's got Bernie nipping at her heels, possibly dividing that Starbucks liberal vote and creating just the right kind of path for Vice President Joe Biden. But the New York Times is not happy. They published an op-ed that dramatically criticizes the Democrats for their nominating process entitled the presidential nominating process is absurd 
from the New York Times. It starts by saying, Our process for selecting presidential nominees is badly flawed. No wonder the current president is a reality TV star, not to mention the most unfit occupant of the office in our country's history. You know, just the disdain for our country and our people drips from the New York Times in op-eds like this, especially when you think about the fact that we're seeing wages rise, we're seeing jobs created, people are more optimistic about their future. Really crazy. And then here is their purported solution. I love this. They say when voters are given the dominant role in choosing the nominee, as with primaries here, only an unrepresented subset tends to participate, which skews the process. Party leaders, on the other hand, have a big incentive to choose broadly the liked candidates. Oh, the New York Times is now anti-voter, pro-establishment. They don't want the people picking. They want to go back to the days of nominating conventions where the party leaders can pick who is broadly liked as a candidate. Give me a break. They don't like the fact that Donald Trump took on the establishment in both parties and won. And they especially don't like the fact that the group of people that they got, they're just not going to beat them. They they end their their, uh, op-ed by saying, the seven candidates who made the last Democratic debate stage all have their strengths, but as a group, they offer an indictment of the nomination process. There are three candidates in their 70s, no African-American or Latino, and there are two people who have never won an election and zero who have ever run a state. So there you have it. You've got the New York Times saying their ideal candidate, non-white, young, winning elections. Maybe they miss Obama. Maybe that's the deal. Maybe it's just they have no Obama. They know they can't beat Trump, so they've got to indict the process. We're going to be breaking down over the next few hours the lies coming out of D.C., the ways you're going to beat them. And I think let's start with the number 10 lie out of Washington in 2019 that impeachment had to be bipartisan. And just just for some context, let's listen to Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Nadler in 1998 talking about impeachment. There must never be a narrowly voted impeachment or an impeachment substantially supported by one of our major political parties and largely opposed by the other. Such an impeachment would lack legitimacy. We are here today because the Republicans in the House are paralyzed with hatred of President Clinton. And until the Republicans free themselves of this hatred, our country will suffer. Ooh, paralyzed by hatred. And you could never say that someone hates someone else. That would be terrible. Oh, wait, that is exactly what Nancy Pelosi did. Play cut for. Impeachment is, um, um, to me, divisive. Uh, again, if the facts are there, if the facts are there, then th- this would have to be bipartisan to go forward. But if it is viewed as partisan, uh, it will divide the country. And I just, I just, I just don't think that that's what we should do. I don't, I don't hate anybody. As a Catholic, I resent your using the word hate in a sentence that addresses me. I don't hate anyone. I was raised in a way that is full, a heart full of love and always prayed for the president. And I still pray for the president. I pray for the president all the time. So don't mess with me. Nancy Pelosi bringing you a heart full of love and an agenda full of impeachment. Give me a break. So in 98, you had these folks saying had to be bipartisan. And then they have brought you now the most partisan the thinnest, the weakest impeachment in presidential history. What a shame. Let's hope for the heart full of love. Let's try to go into 2020, the new decade, with the loving Nancy Pelosi, not the Nancy Pelosi that we've seen in 2019. I'm Congressman Matt Gates in for Sean Hannity. 
We'll be right back after this. Congressman Matt Gates here for Sean Hannity. Sean's got the day off today. GQ Magazine says, I am the Trumpiest congressman in Trump's Washington. Now, they mean that as an insult, but I wear it as a badge of honor, and it is truly an honor to animate the America First movement with some energy and vigor and seize this great chance that we have to save our great country. Just a few minutes, we'll have Congressman Lee Zeldin to break down the response to the attacks that we've seen in New York. We are also breaking down the top 10 D.C. lies of 2019. Number 10 was that impeachment was going to be bipartisan. It wasn't. They lied to you. And number nine, coming in, center field nine if you're a craps player, is that Trump committed bribery. Bribery. Play cut five to hear the words quid pro quo spoken by Democrats, at least not as often as before. That's because the phrase apparently isn't getting much traction for them in the impeachment hearings. So they're rephrasing it. They've moved from, for example, the words of quid pro quo to bribery because it plays better with the focus groups. Bribery, extortion and bribery. Bribe an ally. That's, a, that's bribery. First of all, as the founders understood bribery, it was not as we understand it in law today. It was much broader. It connoted the breach of the public trust in a way where you're offering official acts for some personal or political reason, uh, not in the nation's interest. Oh, Adam Schiff tells us that what you think is bribery isn't really bribery. And what the law says is bribery isn't really bribery. It's actually Adam Schiff's version of bribery that is the lie of 2019 least number nine. Joining us now on the line, we've got Congressman Lee Zeldin. And Congressman, I know I'm going to ask you in just a moment about these terrible attacks in New York City, but just for a moment, can, can you reflect? You were one of the guys down there doing the tough work, taking the depositions, wading through the evidence. Did you ever hear any witnesses mention bribery? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I heard witnesses refuting what would be the elements of bribery when right out of the gate they bring in former special envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, who's telling us that President Zelensky didn't know that there was a hold-on aid until it was read in Politico on August 29th, that the aid gets released shortly thereafter and Ukraine didn't have to do anything in order to get the aid released. So the elements were actually disproven Not only did it not come up, but if you actually read the transcripts and listen to the open hearings, none of these people had any evidence to support it. And Adam Schiff wants you to ignore all of the evidence that actually supports the president's position that there was no bribery or extortion or quid pro quo. So you're down there listening to the depositions. I've read all of them, thousands of pages. The word bribery is only mentioned in the context of Burisma and the Bidens and their nefarious activities, never mentioned as it relates to the president. But yet there was this there was this like whole week where we heard nothing but bribery from the Democrats. Uh, We've seen reporting that that's a consequence of their pollsters and pundits who told them that bribery would sell better to the American people, even though they had no evidence. And so if you're just a regular American out there doing your job, raising your family, you're trying to keep up with all this nonsense in Washington. What are you to make of the fact that Democrats made a claim and then couldn't evidence it, and now we still remain in impeachment limbo? I think that this is a, a warning shot to us of just how important next November's election is. These are people who are not responsible with their gavels. When, you get, get, when they got gavels this past January, when Nancy Pelosi becomes speaker, and Adam Schiff becomes chair, and Jerry Nadler becomes chair, and Maxine Waters becomes a chair, they all get these gavels. In their minds, their instincts, the first thing that they want to do with them is beat someone over the head with it. 
They want scalps. They want to go after the president. They want to resist, oppose, impeach, and obstruct everything and anything. What should the American people make of what they're doing right now is that we should feel empowered, understanding of just how important it is that, that you all, the listeners who are out there, take control of our republic next November with their vote to reelect Donald Trump to another four-year term and to rip these gavels out of the hands of these people who just want to beat folks over the head with it instead of working with colleagues on the other side of the aisle to work with the president to move our country forward. You're listening to Congressman Lee Zeldin. This is Matt Gates, guest host in the Sean Hannity radio show. And I can tell you, I did not feel empowered when I was locked out of the room, not allowed to enter. And Lee Zeldin was one of the members of our conference who was allowed in, took great notes, and really carried the baton for the president and for the America First movement for a substantial period of time. And Lee, I know, uh, shifting gears now, your mind has not been on Washington. It has been on these terrible attacks in New York State. Give us the latest in terms of how communities are reacting and what you see as the response from the political leadership in New York. It's been sick. Every single night of Hanukkah, every day in New York City and, and near New York City, most recently north of New York City in Rockland County, you've had people violently attacked because they are Jewish. Uh, This isn't just an issue where one person is putting up some posters in a town that you have to deal with. These are violent attacks. These are folks who are getting beaten up, whether they are at synagogue, they're on the streets, they're at their homes for a Hanukkah party, being stabbed with machetes most recently in Rockland. And, And for any of the elected officials who are out there who are silent, they're wrong. But it's worse than that. I mean, the press conference isn't going to solve this. And having another press conference, if your first press conference didn't work, isn't going to solve it. There are elected officials in and around near New York City and up in Albany, including Governor Cuomo, all the way to the top, where people all need to be more supportive of law enforcement. They need to more strongly oppose the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. They need to stop associating with the likes of Linda Sarsour, Tamika Mallory, and other activist anti-Semites. There is so much more on so many fronts where individual elected officials who are silent are wrong, but even people who have spoken up still aren't doing enough. You, you've said that people aren't even allowed to protect themselves. You've said, Lee, that this is a massive leadership failure in New York City. How has the city failed in its leadership? And is this practice of letting people out, even if they're charged with hate crimes in the absence of bond, is that part of the failure in leadership? Absolutely. We have this new law now in New York State, thanks to Andrew Cuomo and the Democrats up in Albany, for a cashless bail. You're allowing these people onto the streets freer. You're not sending a stronger message for deterrence for this law. Why do we arrest them in the first place, Lee? If you're going to let them out without paying a bail, without any guarantee they're coming back, I mean, what, what is the point of the arrest? Yeah, I mean, in, in one of the cases where it was Brooklyn, this person was, was homeless, you look at the quality of life issues, the way that's deteriorated under Bill de Blasio, that's an aspect of it. The cultural acceptance for, for this, the lack of education with that next generation. I mean, I could go down a list of all of these different leadership failures now, inside of New York City. And people are silent. Can you believe this? That there are actually elected officials who are allowing this to happen in their, in their districts. Call them out, Lee. Anything. Who needs to be saying more? Give me some names. Give American names. Who are we not hearing from on this scourge of anti-Semitism and violence that needs to be part of the discussion? I would say that you know, the elected officials in, in New York City, in, that con- in those congressional districts, I would challenge the entire New York City congressional delegation 
every single one of them. They are our colleagues. We work with them when we need to. But every single one of them, where are their voices? Well, we hope to where hear are their them. voices. We, we certainly do hope to hear them, and I do think that people's advocacy on these issues matter. Now, Lee, let's go beyond New York to what's happening in our country and in our politics as it relates to this scourge of anti-Semitism. It used to be the case that standing up against this kind of hate was bipartisan. You mentioned earlier that the boycott, divest, and sanction movement was a movement we need to speak against because it is the incarnation of modern-day anti-Semitism. And yet when we take votes and when we uh, spur debate on these questions in the Congress, I don't feel the same sense of bipartisanship that we used to. Why is that happening? Well, I think earlier in this year, you see these new freshman members like Rashida Tlaib and Elon Omar. Elon Omar coming in with, with a history where she's saying that Israel's hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken to see the evil doings of Israel. And then coming in with her anti-Semitic comments, and she gets put on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, making anti-Semitic statements, and Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer covering for her and Rashida Tlaib and attacking us for having an issue with the anti-Semitism, so that when it came time, for the House to make a statement and pass a resolution against anti-Semitism, it didn't name names. It would have if it was a Republican, but these are Democrats. It didn't name names, and instead of singularly, emphatically, forcefully condemning anti-Semitism, instead it was an all-hate-matters resolution that tried to draw moral equivalencies all across the board. And, and I think that you have Nancy Pelosi, we saw with impeachment, rolled by the far left, whether it's members of Congress or it's leaders of the Women's March who were anti-Semitic and were, dri- and were driven out, and were ending 2019 in a worse part than 20, at the, the beginning of 2019, because now these people have taken the position that they aren't even going to apologize anymore. You're no regret, unapologetic about it. You're listening to Congressman Lee Zeldin, congressman from the great state of New York. And Lee, I don't know if you've caught it, but you are not the only New York politician speaking out on this subject. I am here for the Bill de Blasio-Rudy Giuliani Twitter war over this uh, scenario. Reading directly from Rudy Giuliani's Twitter feed, he says, As mayor, I got on anti-Semitism at the earliest possible moment. The attack on Ari Halberstam, I didn't ignore a dozen or so acts and let dangerous people out on bail who threaten citizens. My record on anti-Semitism is 35 years old, prosecuting ex-Nazis. And then you have de Blasio saying, oh, Giuliani's just trying to divide us and get attention. Do you think that there is some, is there a specific act, if, if you were mayor of New York, that you would take following these events to try to keep folks safe? Yeah, I mean, so we went through a whole bunch of different points earlier. And just to keep adding to that list, I would want to give people the right to defend themselves. I mean, there's no right to self-defense in New York City. And meanwhile, there's a reason why when there's a, a funeral for someone with NYPD who ends up dying in the line of duty, that when Bill de Blasio goes up there to speak, 25,000 NYPD officers turn their back, literally, turn their backs and don't have to listen to him in order to send a message to him. So it's stronger support for NYPD. It's more forceful crackdown on the laws. It's getting rid of cashless bail. It's not standing with Linda Sarsour and marching in their New York City Women's March. And that, that list goes on, but allowing people, for example, there are legal law-abiding gun owners who don't have the right to be inside of that Rockland home north of New York City where all those stabbings 
you know, are, are taking place. There's no concealed carry reciprocity, and the laws are even stricter in New York City. In the great state so, of Florida, I, we've the long. we in the great state of Florida, we have also seen attacks on our Jewish population. And one step that we took was enhancing security at Jewish day schools, at places of worship, making grants available so that folks can prepare and harden facilities. Uh, should we be doing more of that nationally and more of it in New York State? Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, like when President Obama was sending in, you know, national assets into Ferguson, I mean, if there's ever a time to be having that discussion and debate, in, you know, in 2019 right now, Hanukkah, unfortunately, in 2019 is going to be remembered for these violent anti-Semitic attacks. Uh, and this president, who just two weeks ago was signing an executive order and was getting ripped for it about how it was dangerous for the Jews, he was signing an executive order to stand against anti-Semitism. You know, this president who moved the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, who recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, and that list goes on, signing the Taylor Force Act into law. You know, you make a great point, Lee. I sometimes wonder, does the, does the bold work of our president to be the most pro-Israel president, and certainly in our lifetime, to recognize the Golan Heights, to move the embassy to Jerusalem, do you think that in any way uh, that is creating space for people to, to react negatively, to react violently? And uh, is is the right approach for us to just continue to stand with our Jewish and uh, Israeli brothers and sisters? Well, first off, I want to point out, it's been amazing how much of the violent anti-Semitic attacks are being carried out by people who hate the president. Yeah. They want to blame the president every time this happens. These people... They don't like President Trump. They actually criticize him because he's too supportive of Jews. Well, we're, Jews we're grateful for that support. We are grateful for that support. We're grateful for Congressman Lee Zeldin. This is Congressman Matt Gates, and for Sean Hannity, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Show. This is Congressman Matt Gates breaking down the top 10 D.C. lies of 2019. Number 10 was that impeachment would be bipartisan. Number 9 was that Trump committed bribery, both obvious lies. Brings us to number 8. That Trump pressured the Ukraine. Play cut seven. The questions presented by this impeachment inquiry are whether President Trump sought to exploit that ally's vulnerability. The matter is as simple and as terrible as that. Simple and terrible. These Democrats so sad that Trump actually provided the aid ultimately that Obama withheld. But what does Zelensky say? Does President Zelensky agree with Schiff? There was no blackmail, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky insisted today regarding his dealings with President Trump. I think, and you read it, that nobody pushed pushed me. Yes. In other words, no pressure. Nobody pushed me. No pressure. Despite the fact you've got Adam Schiff and the report saying otherwise. You know what? Just time and again, these claims continue to be disproven, continue to be unwound. And I think that the American people are starting to see the truth. So we'll be back in just a few minutes. And my expectation is you are going to love what we got coming up. We're going to break down the elements of the Steele dossier that were included to spy on the American citizens and the extent to which politics has infected our intelligence community. We'll sort it out. We'll break it down for you. This is Matt Gates in for Sean Hannity. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Show. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Sean is actually bound and gagged in the corner of the studio trying to get his show back, and I am not giving it to him. For the next few hours, I'm going to continue to break down the top 10 D.C. lies of 2019. We'll be on to number seven in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about my morning at the New York Stock Exchange. I went down there to have a television interview with one of the less friendly 
media outlets that we have in our country. I think that you know you can't just go on the Hannity Show, you can't just go on Fox News. I think you got to win all your home games and then at least go 50-50 on the road if you want to make an argument in our great country. So I'm down there on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, a Florida boy from a pretty red district, and I'm thinking, you know, it is going to be like liberal mecca here in New York. Let me tell you something. It is MAGA country on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, those folks are seeing the prosperity in this country. They're seeing the 401ks filled up with wealth and opportunity for our citizens. I even talked to one guy, came up, tugged me on the elbow and said, oh, you know, are you you Matt Gates?" And you know, sometimes I have to ask, well, who's asking and why? But, but he was eager to share with me that he was an Obama voter but would always support President Trump because he sees the impact on our economy. Folks are even hiding their, their Trump 2020 stickers down there on the floor of the stock exchange. So if you ever think that here in New York it is just the, the liberal enclave, know that there is at least some real estate where folks see the impact of the Trump presidency and they're excited about it wasn't just the New York Stock Exchange today. We also saw some celebrity news. Sharon Stone back in the headlines. Sharon Stone blocked from dating app as users assume her account is fake. Sharon Stone on the Bumble app. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm a single guy, a member of the Bachelor Caucus in uh, Washington, D.C. So, Sharon, the DMs are open. Hit me up. I would totally hang out with Sharon Stone. I mean, you know, maybe our politics wouldn't exactly be aligned, but... I mean, who, who didn't love Basic Instinct? I, I feel like that, that would give you enough to talk about for like at least three dates. Just, just your hot takes on Basic Instinct. So Sharon Stone sets up this, this account on Bumble. And as I understand the Bumble dating app, distinct from other dating apps, the, the female participant has to make initial contact. That's, that's what I understand. I, I'm getting some nodding from female producers in the studio. Okay, so that's how it works. A little different on Bumble than on Tinder, maybe, uh, or some of the other apps. So she signs up, and they think it's a fake account. They think someone is pretending to be Sharon Stone and is ultimately blocked. So I don't know. I, I wonder if this is her only dating app she's on. Are there people out there swiping right for Sharon Stone on Tinder? Are there? I mean, you wouldn't swipe left. We'll see. I don't know. Sharon Stone trying to get back in the hive, uh, back in the game. Now, see, Sean always gives me advice about these types of things. He says, Matt, you know, I, I know you're single, but don't be on any of those dating apps. You, you can't be on the dating app. So despite the fact that our man, Sean Hannity, happily married dude, uh, been out of that world, is all about making sure that... Uh, Do you think you would be uh, banned? Would they think yours is a fake account? You know, if I... I wonder if I would be banned. I wonder if I, you know, if I was, uh, if I was on the the Bumble or Tinder app, would I be able to maintain that? Maybe I'd be deplatformed. I don't know. Sh Twitter shadow banned me. Twitter shadow banned four members of Congress: Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, Devin Nunes, and Matt Gates. So in a way, I was very honored to be included in that group. But I wonder if you'd get shadow banned on a dating site. I, I guess uh, <laughs> that might be what I have to tell myself if I got no interest. <laughs> Maybe I would, if I wasn't actually blocked. Well, we hope that Sharon Stone finds love, if that's Bumble or elsewhere. No one who broke the barriers she did on Basic Instinct should have to be lonely for long. So we are, we are with you, Sharon Stone. We are here for this battle between you and Bumble. Everybody makes, all, makes, makes a lot of like the conflict with big tech in Washington. That's a big source of debate and discussion. This is the real discussion we got to have. How is Bumble treating Sharon Stone unfairly? Speaking of unfair, the Steele dossier. How about, how about that for a radio transition? 
The Steele dossier was the subject of much discussion in 2019. It is the subject of our 2019 lie number seven of the year. Time and again, you heard Democrats saying that the Steele dossier was not a central part of the FISA application. Play clip nine. Let's hear the lie. It was part of a broader mosaic of facts that were laid before the FISA judge to obtain a FISA warrant. And the dossier was part of that, but was not all of it or a critical part of it. The dossier was not the sum total of that of that request for FISA authority. It was a it was part of some of the information that was in that package, um, but not all of it. Director Mueller, can you state with confidence that the Steele dossier was not part of Russia's disinformation campaign? With regard to the Steele, uh, uh, that's beyond my purview. No, it is exactly your purview, Director Mueller. See, I got my Irish up there. Mueller saying that the Steele dossier, not part of his purview. So, so let's break down the two central questions here. First, there's the question of whether or not this political opposition research, as we all know, paid for, funded by the DNC, the Clinton campaign, uh, was it used? Was it part of an effort to utilize the strongest tools that our government has to collect intelligence and apply that tool to Americans who many believed were close to the Trump campaign, involved in the Trump campaign, involved with the president. So we said, yeah, it was used. Yeah, it was a, a central to this question. And, and you had Jim Comey saying, oh, no, it's part of the mosaic. You had McCabe saying, well, it's not, not the complete picture, but just a little bit. First of all, the dossier as political opposition research should not have been any part of an application to spy on citizens. It should not have been included at all. We now know it's been debunked. We now know that the subsources, the people that gave Steele the information when they were interviewed by Michael Horowitz, the Obama-appointed inspector general, they said, well, you know, Steele, gosh, they talked to us and then they went and put stuff in the dossier that either we didn't say or they put in information that is the exact opposite of what we told them. Folks, this is what opposition research is, okay? It is not credible information. It is intended for consumption within a political campaign, and very frequently it does not stand withstand the test of time. And when the veracity is tested, it obviously has crumbled in this particular case. And so we were out there telling you, we were telling the American people they used this crap to go and spy on Carter Page. And, and what did we hear from Adam Schiff and Jim Comey and Andrew McCabe? Oh, we heard from all them, no, 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 it was just, just a part. It wasn't really a main thing. And then Mueller saying it's not his purview, even though it is a foreign actor talking to other foreigners about who, how to inject their views and at times their lies into our domestic politics to impact a presidential contest. So that was Comey, McCabe, Mueller, now let's play cut 10. The Clinton campaign and the DNC funded uh, the Steele dossier. Uh, so we now learn that the FBI investigation, the key evidence was funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign. It was the dossier funded by Democrats that really fueled this investigation. The FISA applications relied entirely on information from the, from the Steele primary subsources reporting to support the allegation that Page was coordinating with the Russian government on 2016 U.S presidential election activities. So that's back in June. You hear John Solomon reporting about the Steele dossier. In May, you have me telling the country this is something we ought to be concerned about. And then the inspector general, Michael Horowitz, saying without the Steele dossier, they do not get this FISA application. 
And this is this is sort of the problem we have with the news cycle of Washington, D.C. I mean, Adam Schiff went out there and wrote a report that was a lie, that said that that nothing was improper about the utilization of the dossier, that it was just part and parcel of this broader spectrum of evidence. Devin Nunes told the truth when he put out the Nunes memo. You'll all remember the release the memo hashtag. Sean was pushing it. I was pushing it. We got the, that information out. And then what did the mainstream media do? They took every opportunity to slam Nunes, to uplift these claims of Schiff, and now you heard it right from the Inspector General Michael Horowitz, the verdict that they were lying to you. They were lying. The Steele dossier was part of this foreign interference campaign. And I'm a little pissed that we gave tens of millions of dollars to Mueller to go and investigate foreign interference. We gave him unlimited subpoena authority. We gave him all these prosecutors and FBI agents. And instead of ascertaining whether or not Steele's pollution of our politics was part of a foreign interference campaign, he just says, not my purview. I guess anything that would have implicated Democrats or the people who hate the president were not in the purview of Robert Mueller, but any opportunity to, you know, like throw the book at Roger Stone, to jam up Michael Flynn, any of that stuff, you saw the FBI, the Mueller team seize every chance. But when you have real foreign interference in the form of this dossier, which now even the Obama IG tells us was central to their effort, you don't get that same that same look. You don't get that same... And I think I would say appropriate review of those facts. And, and now you've even got Democrats saying, oh, well, this this Senate trial, it's going to be it's going to be rigged. Let's listen to Senator Chris Van Hollen talk about the rigged process. Is Senator McConnell, the Republican leader, going to try to rig this trial uh, right from the start, working in lockstep with the president and his lawyers? Or is he going to allow a fair trial? You know, we keep hearing President Trump say he's going to be exonerated. Look, if you have a rigged trial, there is no exoneration. So let me get this straight. Democrats rigged the primary so that Hillary Clinton beats Bernie Sanders. Then the FBI goes and rigs a process where they're able to gin up an investigation into the Trump campaign in the absence of proper predication. Then you have a rigged process before the FISA court where the inspector general has told us the FBI and the Department of Justice learned that it was BS, that it wasn't true, that these that Steele wasn't reliable, and they continued to march forward with FISA renewals. And then I think most insidiously, you've got the mainstream media trying to rig the perception of the American people of these facts and the facts that will never change. No conditionality from the president to the Ukraine, no knowledge of any quid pro quo, any shakedown, any bribery, and time and again, Democrats failing to present evidence to underlie their claims. Really quite something. And if there's ever a rigged process, it's the process that our transformational president is facing as he is doing all he can to save our great country. Sean Hannity's out today. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Look me up on Twitter at Rep Matt Gates on Facebook at YouTube. Congressman Matt Gates. We'll be right back on the Sean Hannity Show. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Radio Show. This is Congressman Matt Gates. You can follow me on Twitter at Rep Matt Gates. That's actually the Twitter handle that my staff runs, and that Twitter handle has been the subject of precisely zero congressional ethics investigations. If you can handle spicier content, follow my personal account at 
Matt Gates, M-A-T-T-G-A-E-T-Z. We are breaking down the top 10 DC lies of 2019, giving you the ammunition to fight back in 2020 as we work to restore and revive the America First movement. The number 10 lie was that impeachment would be bipartisan. Number nine, this bribery nonsense. Number eight, that Trump pressured Ukraine. Number seven, that the Steele dossier was not a central part of the FISA application. That brings us to the number six DC lie of the year, that Adam Schiff and his team did not coordinate with the whistleblower. Let's hear the lie. Play quickly. Uh, we have not spoken directly with the whistleblower. Uh, we would like to. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. In fact, this entire Ukraine mess was not the organic outgrowth of some presidential misconduct. This was a planned attack on the presidency. It was, in my view, a large consequence of the failed Russia hoax when Democrats were so embarrassed that the Russia hoax flopped. They, they went to the country next door in the Ukraine. And then you get this whistleblower complaint and you think, wow, this person just came up with all this. Oh, Schiff never talked to him. In fact, that is not true. Play clip the 12. whistleblower met with a staff member of Adam Schiff. Prior oh, I love to that question. Being filed. It shows that Schiff is a fraud. And this puts him in some in some trouble. Uh, he clearly uh, wasn't being forthright uh, in that interview with us a couple weeks ago. Do you regret saying that we, the committee, weren't in touch with the whistleblower? I should have been much more clear. When the whistleblower filed the complaint, um, we had not heard from the whistleblower. We wanted to mm -hmm. bring the whistleblower in at that time. Uh, but I should have been much more clear about that. Oh, he should have been much more clear with us. I tell you what, when Sam Stein of the Daily Beast has to fact check you as a Democrat, you, you have done something wrong. That was the voice of Sam Stein saying that Schiff was not forthright. And, and he thinks he should have been more clear. Here's why this matters. OK, if in fact... This is not some person who had some organic view of wrongdoing, but in fact was a coordinated effort, then we have to understand where all of that connective tissue lies. Remember, President Trump was elected to drain the swamp, to go after the deep state, to attack this element of permanent Washington that fundamentally believes that no matter which party wins, they are in charge, that their views hold over those of the American people. Fortunately, we've got a hard-charging, bold president who stands against that, and I think it really exposes the entire Ukraine deal when you have a look at Adam Schiff and his team not being clear, coordinating with the whistleblower, and we still do not know who that person is. As I sit here before you, a member of the Armed Services Committee, I don't know who the whistleblower is. My colleagues on the Intelligence Committee don't know. Only Adam Schiff knows. And you got to ask yourself this question. Why does anyone in America still trust Adam Schiff at all. I mean, this was a guy just a few months ago saying that he had cold, hard evidence of collusion beyond circumstantial. Trump was a Russian agent. And now, lo and behold, the evidence isn't there. The facts didn't pan out. And you have a manufactured impeachment, a manufactured fake impeachment that is born more of the Democrats' embarrassment over their own claims than anything that President Trump did. The number six lie of the year Adam Schiff and his team didn't coordinate with the whistleblower. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Stay with us. I'll be right back with none other than the master strategist, Steve Bannon. Hang right in there. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Show. I'm Congressman Matt Gates filling in for Sean today. And on the line, we have one of the very smartest people I know. And uh, Steve Bannon is a political strategist, former investment banker, former executive chairman of Breitbart News. He was the White House chief strategist, currently is the host of the War Room podcast. I go to Steve a lot for advice. I know there's a lot of folks 
in our movement who really uh, look to Steve as kind of our spirit animal throughout these impeachments and investigations. Thanks for being with me, Steve. Well, Congressman, as you know, it was your it was your amazing strategic move to go down and break the fever in the uh, in the basement of the Capitol that turned the tide here. So uh, I tip my hat to you on this one. Well, thank you. And, and here's my first question. If impeachment were a baseball game, what inning are we in and what is the score? I think it's I think we're very close. I think we're in the early innings. I don't think they have any intention of stopping. They, they realize they don't have the uh, they don't have the juice on stage to beat President Trump in any type of election at the ballot box right now unless something dramatically changes with the players they've got, and particularly with his economic program. So I think we're in the very early innings of this, and I think we're ahead right now. But i got to tell you, it, it, this thing changes every day. You saw the New York Times, this, this definitive piece Maggie Haberman and these folks were, have worked on for weeks. They're trying to dump, I think, either open up new investigations or dump new information because they have, as you know, you're, you're, the, you're the guy I look to as the lawyer here. They have very little evidence. They're in a mad search for evidence. This is not going to stop. This is the nullification project. This is all about blunting President Trump's presidency and the arc of the Trump movement. So I, I think we're in the very early stages of this thing. I don't think it's over by any stretch of the imagination. So we get back in January. Nancy Pelosi still hasn't sent over the articles of impeachment. What do you think is her next move? Well, listen, this is what I think you, you summed it up a couple of weeks ago when we talked, is that she, I think she's going to slow walk this now to see if other evidence comes. I mean, you were the one that hammered it in judiciary, these guys. You know, shift is, is this is all hearsay. They don't want the guns turned on them, I think, in some sort of trial where they're just ripped apart for the lack of evidence they've got. I think she's scrambling. You know, they're here. The rest of the people have left the Capitol. They've been here the entire time, beavering away. And you keep hearing, you know, these rumors of what they're putting out. Oh, there's other shoes that drop. There's other evidence to come out. And that's why they're working the, the refs here. They keep talking about the 51 votes in the Senate. They need to get other, other evidence in here. I think they're working nonstop to try to bring stuff up, just like in the Kavanaugh hearings. They're trying, to, they're trying to go to whether it's emails, whether it's trying to get witnesses. I think they're beavering away here. They realize they have a very weak case right now. It didn't play on national TV. You know, guys like yourself, men and women uh, on the Republican side, I think, lit up their witnesses, made them look foolish. Uh, and she's very determined. You know, one thing we can never underestimate, Nancy Pelosi is a fighter. She's going to fight to the end of the thing. She's already committed. She's all in. She can't back off. And I think we're in for a real struggle here. What do we do to get more of the Republicans in the fight? I mean, you know, Steve, one of the things that really surprised me when I came to Washington is how few really want to get in the battle and roll up their sleeves and, and win this thing. I mean, the, the it's, Trump it's presidency is not just... It's, it's, what, it's, sure. what you, it's what you did. You took bold action. The, what, what's going to get people in this? Remember, you've, you, you and I have talked about this. This is not really a city of leaders. This is a city of followers. It's the people. We're a populist movement. We're an economic nationalist movement. These people respond to what, the, the, to what you know, public sentiment is and where the public is. It was your bold move, and I think we need other bold strokes. That, look, I've argued now for three weeks that you should be on the litigation team. People like you and Jim Jordan and others. We ought to have Lee Zeldin. We have to have our killers. That this is what this is the President Trump brand. He needs a trial. He needs to be exonerated, not just some quick and dirty acquittal, because they're going to continue on. This is part of their permanent impeachment process. And what, here's what we do. I think the way to do it is to – I saw two bold actions that galvanized people. Number one, President Trump saying, hey, what I did was perfect, right? That was a perfect call. What I did was perfect. I don't want to hear people saying, well, I don't approve of it, but it's not impeachable. 
and people lined up, substance and unity, substance and unity. And then you had to move really on national TV that the Democrats were not ready for because the Republicans don't take bold action. I think we need more bold action when they get back in. When people start arriving next week, I think people like yourself and others and people in the Senate, we have to step up and make plays. You stepped up and made a play. The president made a play. You know, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, some other people, Lee Zeldin, made plays. Stefanik, you need people to step up and make plays. And to me, that is taking bold action and going after the Democrats. Let me leave no doubt about that question. If the president wants me to go over there to the Senate and make the argument for his defense on the floor, I will do it. It might be the only way I get to the floor of the Senate, but I would most certainly uh, take the opportunity to go and, and fight for the president and, and really make what I think is the substantive case that we're able to evidence. Steve, put yourself back in the White House. Is the next major decision that they have to make the design of their litigation team, the the PR message, the PR tone, as we roll into 2020, is it more cowbell, more of the same, or is there some nuance you would bring at this phase of the of the experience? No, I would, I would do bold moves. The litigation team would be built around a strategy. I think we're coming to a fork in the road. And I think you see people that are saying, hey, we want to quicken. It's like golf. They're going to give you the putt, take the putt. We want to quicken dirty. As soon as we get the votes, if that's acquittal, take it, move on. Let Lindsey Graham and the judiciary. I happen to think that's not the way to do it. And the reason is I think we're in the early stages of this. They're not going to give up. You see already they're saying, well, if he's acquitted with this jury, then it really is not. You know, he really didn't get acquitted for impeachment. To me, the president needs to be exonerated in this trial in the Senate and then vindicated at the polls in November. And I think we can do that. I, I agree with the president. And I think people like you and Lee Zeldin would be perfect. I think we got to get the whistleblower. I, I don't, if I read that thing at Maggie Hayron's in the New York Times today, I have no problem. You know, I have no problem with Mulvaney and Bolton and people like that coming up and talking. If that's the best they've got, where the president says, hey, I think this country's got problems. I think this country's corrupt. And I don't want to send this money over there and tell them no about it. I, if that's what they're, if that's what they're concerned about, versus having the whistleblower, versus having guys in the intelligence apparatus, versus having you know people like Brennan coming and testifying about this entire nullification project they've run from day one in the FBI, then I would say bring it. And I think I, being the White House right now, arguing that for the president and crafting a litigation team that both had heavy duty constitutional guys, but then killers like yourself, Lee Zeldin, and a couple others that could bring the necessary elements you need. Because remember, this is going to be in front of the entire globe. This is going to be, this is the trial of the century. It's going to be on global television. Everybody's going to be focused on this. This is when people are really going to get access and come into the story. And that's why I want to have my killers there. Yeah, I only got a B-plus in con law at the College of William & Mary, so I would want Dershowitz there. That would be like, you know, who I'd want riding with me on, on some of the thicker parts of constitutional law. You're listening to Steve Bannon, host of the War Room podcast. And Steve, you, you just hit on it, but I want to draw a finer point here. We've talked about this in terms of a trial, and I think most people would say that the jury is the Senate. But you have a far broader view. Who is the jury in this trial of the century? The jury's first off the American people on a broader scope. This is this is in Klobuchar said the other day. This is a global trial. This is our enemies, our allies. This is the people of the world, and the real jury is the American people. The senators are just ciphers. But to me, they're just insurance. I mean, even the questions they get to pass the questions to the to the chief justice. Yes, are there going to be sixty-seven votes removing? No, but it's it's deeper than that, Congressman. This is about the entire Trump presidency. This is about how they try to nullify his presidency and delegitimize it from day one, even before he took the oath of office. This is about the Trump movement. This is going to last. They're going to talk about this 100 years from now. And you know, going to the College of Women and Mary 
is I remember a couple of three of the framers I think went there too. <laughs> this is this is very important. This is this is history. This is history in the making, and we just can't take a quick acquittal, which they're already whining about right now. This the mainstream media is going to hammer him every day. It's not really acquittal. Just because did, we didn't have the votes, you're still guilty. You're still impeached. We have to. We it's smeared. They try to smear his record. And what you need is a phalanx of people around him that are prepared to go down there, argue the case, and look at the facts. I think Trump said substance and unity. And as we've gone through this, the more granularity we got, what you called for that day in the, in the basement of the Capitol, let's get it all up, let's get in front of the American people, and let the American people weigh and measure it. They're the, jur- they're the true jury here with the world watching. And I believe in the common sense and decency of the American people if we get all the facts out there. Steve Bannon says, open the kimono all the way. You want all the witnesses, Bolton, Mulvaney, Biden, the whistleblower. You B- bring put them game, all on. Game on. You, 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 I'll take Mulvaney and Bolton. The worst thing they can say, give me the whistleblower, give me Brennan, give me Clapper, give me Comey, McCabe. Let's on. get all the FBI guys up here. Hey. You give me that. I'll take. I'll take the over and under on our uh, on our witnesses. Does that empower? Let me let, let me let me make make the the other argument. Does that empower some of the less Trump supporting Republicans in in the Senate? Does that make Murkowski and Romney and all their views hyper relevant in an extended trial? You know what? You can't be supplicants of those people. Maybe maybe it does on the margins, but you know what it does? It brings Manchin and Jones and some others, and I think Kristen Cinema who's, to me, one of the best retail politicians out there. She's thinking long-term about her career. You're going to make a case to the American people, and you're going to make a case to history. That Donald Trump, they came after him on a nullification project. This thing in the Ukraine is a sideshow to a sideshow. The New York Times took their best shot today. That's the best shot that they took with their top reporters weeks and weeks. Everybody should go and read that. I think it's 4,000 words. Read every word of it and sit there at the end of the day. You said, hey, if this is the best they got, give me the whistleblower. (laughs) Give me the senior guys in the intelligence apparatus. Let's get their emails. Let's see their text messages. Let's see what conversations they had. Let's have Matt Gates under, have those guys under oath with Gates and Zeldin and Jordan and people like that hammering them, and let's see how they stand up. I like our chances. Well, Steve, sometimes, you know, I feel like Zeldin and Jordan and Meadows and I, we can be like the tempest in the teapot. We can we can be so consumed by the intricacies of a specific fact that, that you'll lose the broader perspective. Help me help the Hannity listeners understand 300 some odd days from now as we're closing in on President Trump's reelect. What out of all that we've experienced in this is going to matter? What are going to be the maybe two or three salient points that really drive this thing from an electoral standpoint 300 days from now? Here's what's going to be. It's going to be that the, the elites in this country that were comfortable with managed decline, that Donald Trump came up in a time and place to, to blow back on that. And they, did not, they would use any element they had, any element they had to destroy him. And I think next year when you see the convergence, the critical mass of his economic policies, his national security policies, were safer, more prosperous, and at peace than at any time we've been in the last 20 years. We haven't spent... $2 trillion in Afghanistan on his watch. We haven't spent $5 Amen. trillion dollars in Iraq and, and haven't lost these people. People are going to sit there and go, you know what? He came at a time and a place. The country needed somebody to stand up and tell the established order we cannot continue on like this. And that, to me, is what the November race is. And that's why it starts in this trial. We have to have him exonerated. He is innocent. 
He needs to be shown that he's innocent. It's just not an acquittal. And people that are arguing just for a quick acquittal are missing the broader point here. The point here is for the history of this presidency, this transformative nature of his presidency, that we need to finish the transformation. And we have to fight in the U.S. Senate. And we need guys like you, Lee Zeldin, Mark Meadows, and Jim Jordan there to fight with him. Or is it your expectation, then, that this is an impeachment election, that these that these other policy issues sort of take a back seat? And if it's going to be an impeachment election, we damn well better win it with the best impeachment arguments? Well, it's yes. It's, here's what they're going to play is that, is that they're going to show that he's unfit, that he's a clear. Listen, this is the reason they had to rush it through here. He's a clear and present danger. Right. He's unfit for office. His character is unfit. You see the commercials right now on the front page of The New York Times that Bloomberg's taking out, you know, tens of millions of dollars to attack his character. That's a grand trick because his policies are working. His economic policies are working. His immigration policies are working. You don't have the stock market at all-time high and having wages come up, particularly for African-Americans, Hispanic, and, and the white working-class, low-skilled workers. It shows you the labor markets are working, the capital markets are working because trade, immigration, his tax cut, uh, you know, deconstruction, administrative state, energy dominance, all the policies are coming together to work at one point in time. His national security policy, they can't, they're not going to be able to make policy debates. That's why the Democratic debates are so stupid. It's like they're running for student council president. There's no real, there's no real juice there. What they're going to do is go after him as a person, an individual, and his fitness for office. That's what we've got to. And we listen to me, we've got the, we've got the information. I think you go after the nullification project and show the American people this is the reason, Congressman, he, today Gallup said that he's tied with Obama's most admired man in America. He was at, I think, 12% last year, tied with Obama this year. And that poll was taken in the 1st of December during some of the darkest days of this impeachment. More I hear you, man. The facts come out, the better Donald Trump. You heard it from Bannon here. Long trial. Keep fighting. That's what we'll do. I'm Matt Gates in for Sean Hannity. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Radio Show. This is Congressman Matt Gates in for Sean. We're counting down the top 10 D.C. lies of the year. That brings us to number five, that Trump colluded with Russia. There is significant evidence on the issue of collusion. Cold, hard evidence of the Trump campaign, indeed the Trump family, eagerly intending to collude. You're a member of the judiciary. Do you believe the president right now has been an agent of the Russians? Yes, I, I think there's more evidence than he agent. is. Yes, and I, I think all the arrows point in that direction, and I haven't seen a single piece of evidence that he's not. Two years they told us Trump was an agent of the Russian government, and then what did we hear from Robert Mueller? The first volume of the report details numerous efforts emanating from Russia to influence the election. This volume includes a discussion of the Trump campaign's response to this activity, as well as our conclusion that there was insufficient evidence to charge a broader conspiracy. There you have it, the lie the response, and really the reason we have this whole Ukraine nonsense in the first place. They're embarrassed about Russia, so they went to the country next door. Well, we're going to be counting down top five lives of the year, and we got Corey Lewandowski answering some political questions, answering some impeachment questions. Coming up next. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Radio Show. This is Congressman Matt Gates filling in for Sean. We are counting down the top D.C. lies of 2019. The number four lie is that the Bidens did nothing wrong. You heard it from Joe Biden out on the campaign trail as he's constantly attacked. And let's now hear from Hunter himself. You didn't have any extensive knowledge about natural gas or Ukraine itself, though. Uh, no. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. Did I make a mistake? Well, maybe in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, yeah. 
I don't know too many Americans whose mistakes result in them making between fifty and eighty thousand dollars a month from a foreign corporation. That you know, I've made a few mistakes. It's mostly like losing my keys. It's not exactly ending up in just kind of a wrong place, wrong time business relationship with a foreign company. But be that as it may, I think we can all see what's really going on there. And and I would also suggest the number three lie of the year is this notion that Trump obstructed justice. That is something that our next guest would seem to know a lot about because Corey Lewandowski was supposed to be the the first big witness, the first big hearing in the obstruction of justice case. Joining us now, the man who whooped the House Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, my good friend Corey Lewandowski. Thanks for being with us, Corey. Thank you, Congressman. Great to be with you this afternoon. What was that like? I mean, there you were. America was watching. You were supposed to make the case for the Democrats. The president did, did all these bad things. Looking back, it's sort of like the maiden voyage that burnt up before the ship left the harbor, wouldn't you say? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, for anybody who gets subpoena like I did, and you remember I offered to come and testify without a subpoena, but they subpoenaed me anyways, and they changed the rules. Then they brought in some outside guys who weren't even part of the committee to give them time to answer, to ask me more questions. And I sat there and I answered every single question. And, you know, Congressman, it's going to be frustrating for you because you sit on the committee and you heard the lies that they perpetuated through the entire hearing, not the least of which was towards the end of the hearing when Chairman Nadler said, the witness has requested a bathroom break. I said, no, I didn't. No, no, the witness has to use the bathroom. I said, you guys lie about everything, including the fact that I don't have to go to the bathroom. Let's just finish the hearing. So, you know, it was lie after lie. My, my reputation was attacked. I was like a fish being gutted with a spoon, which I don't know what the hell that means. But, you know, you got President Swalwell on the committee, oh, and you got, you got all the geniuses. you got Congressman Cohen, who's a real genius, right? you got, you got all these geniuses on the committee. And if you Stable remember, geniuses, right? There were supposed to be two other people, two other witnesses there that day. And I showed up, and at the end of the hearing, the members of Congress were asking questions to the empty chairs. That's how stupid these people are. It's just amazing how you do this every the, day. The, em- the empty chairs might have had higher IQ points than my Democrat colleagues. Well, we got to relive some of these highlights. Uh, give, give me the Corey Lewandowski highlight reel from the House Judiciary Committee. They, it sort of sounded like House Democrats were, were a dog that caught a car and then didn't know what to do with it. Play the clip. I never delivered the message. Yeah, you chickened out. I went on vacation. You went on vacation. <laughs> and so you put, the, you put the message in the safe, in your safe, in your home for safekeeping, correct? Before you went on vacation. I took my kids to the beach, Congressman. That's more and, of a priority. And, and President Trump was hounding you about when are you going to deliver that message, correct? Completely inaccurate, Congressman. Well, he asked you about it a, a few times, didn't he? No, he did not. So every note that you take of the president, you put in a safe? How big is that I safe? I don't, it's a big safe, Congress. There's a lot of guns in there. Would you like to read it? No, you're welcome to read it. Are you ashamed of the words that you wrote down? President Swalwell, I'm very happy of what I've written, but you're welcome to read it if you'd like. I am not allowed by House rules to impugn the motives of my colleagues or to speculate as to what might be animating this bizarre circumstance. But those rules don't apply to you. So, Mr. Lewandowski, do you have a thought as to why we continue to engage in a charade that is overwhelmingly opposed by the American people and fundamentally misunderstood by my Democrat colleagues. You know, Congressman, I think they hate this president more than they love their country. You know, Corey, when you said that, 
it really, really shook the room. But the more we've seen this play out with the Russia hoax collapsing, with the obstruction of justice claims vanishing into thin air, it, it really seems like you were right. You were, you were prophetic in that. It's a sad state of affairs when you can't celebrate the work that this president has accomplished in the first three years of his administration, whether it's the booming economy, the lowest unemployment rate for African Americans and Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans ever recorded, whether it's the renegotiating of our bad trade deals, whether it's the rebuilding our military. All they continue to do is attack this president and his family for nothing. And really, it's so sad because I've said it during the hearing, and I'll say it again. I didn't vote for Barack Obama, and I didn't support Barack Obama. But I sure didn't want to see my president fail because I didn't want to see my country fail. That's not the state of affairs anymore in Washington, and the Democrats will pay for this at the ballot box come November of 2020. Speaking of the ballot box, you are listening to Corey Lewandowski. You can find out more about him at standwithcorey.com, standwithcorey.com. And I believe that was a website launched during your testimony before the House Judiciary Committee, if I am not uh, incorrect about that. But uh, I don't expect, Corey, that the day before New Year's Eve uh, with me guest hosting the Sean Hannity radio show is going to be the moment at which you announce your Senate candidacy. So let me let me just put that aside and ask you this question. What do you think that you offer as a candidate that maybe your typical candidate doesn't? You know, your typical state legislator, party chairman, you know, the type of people we typically run. You are, you are very different. You're outside the box. Uh, what would that look like in a campaign for the Senate in New Hampshire if you were choose to, to choose to make that decision? Well, I think part of the attraction that people would see in me is my ability to go to Washington, D.C., and not be beholden to the special class, not be beholden to the lobbyists, to go down and fight for what you believe in, and then get out. I have no interest, if I run for office, to be a career politician. You know, our incumbent U.S. senator right now served six years as a governor, eight years as a state senator, and now 12 years as a United States senator, and decides she wants to run again. She's gotten very rich while in office, and her family has clearly profiteered off of her elective service. She votes with uh, Nancy Pelosi and AOC to continue to fund sanctuary cities, which is antithetical to the New Hampshire way of life here. And look, what Corey Lewandowski brings, what I don't think state representatives and state senators have had the opportunity to do, is a national fundraising profile and a fight that you can hate what I have to say, but you have to respect that I believe in my core convictions and I never back down. And I am an unapologetic Donald John Trump supporter. And if I get in the race, I'm going to go down to Washington, D.C. to kick doors down, to take names, and to fix a fundamentally broken system and then get the hell out of there and come back home. I think the Senate would be terrified of you. And frankly, I think there are a lot of people in the Senate now who would rather be Corey Lewandowski than be in the Senate. I mean, you know, you now have this, as you say, a national platform. The president relies on your advice frequently. I've been with the president when he has sought your counsel and your perspective on the issues facing the country. Why is being in the Senate better than being Corey? Well, you know, it's, it's a real question. And the real question for me, Matt, is A, what's best for my family? That's the most important thing. But B, where can I be the best help to, to President Trump and Vice President Pence to ensure that they're reelected in 2020? Because, look, if, if I win a U.S. Senate seat, but Donald Trump and Mike Pence don't get reelected, I'll never serve a day in Washington, D.C., because the chief executive position is so critical for the direction of our country. It's so vital of the way our country moves forward and our standing in the world that that's where my priority is right now. And I've told the president this. 
I had the privilege to speak to him uh, just over Christmas, just a few days ago, and he's encouraged me again to run for this United States Senate seat because he knows I can win in New Hampshire. I know I can win in New Hampshire. But I want to make sure that I'm doing what's best for my family and to make sure I'm doing what's best to ensure that Donald Trump and Mike Pence are reelected to four more years because without them there, we have a socialist at the White House who is apologetic to being an American, who probably honeymooned in Russia, who believes that you know giving illegal immigrants free education and free health care is the right thing. That's everything that I'm against. It's everything our country is against. That's why my priority after my family is helping the president. Well, and you've been a fantastic fighter for the president, and, and you are part of that fighter class, part of really what I think makes the America First movement so special. We're not there to just mark time and stare at our nameplates. We actually want to get stuff done for the country, and we don't want to be there forever. In in your candidacy, I would see something uh, that, that really shapes a lot of these Senate contests, and that is an expansion of the map. I don't think there's anyone else looking to run for the U.S. Senate in New Hampshire who would really have a chance to win. I think you give us the winning potential in that race. Then all of a sudden, life gets maybe a little easier for Cory Gardner, gets a little easier for Joni Ernst, because they've got to deal with the pesky Corey Lewandowski going after their, uh, their prized princess in Jean Shaheen. What do you think will be the top issues in 2020 outside of impeachment? You know, we had Steve Bannon on earlier. He believes that we've got to win the impeachment debate because this will be the fundamental issue in the election. But in New Hampshire, is it opioids? Is it trade? Or, or is this really all about the effort that the left has undertaken to, to rip our votes away from us? The, the public polling data, even in the state of New Hampshire, says the number one issue is the issue of immigration. We have a president in office who has decided that he's going to stop a failed, broken immigration system and allow people to come here based on the merits and the needs of this country, which is the absolute opposite of what the previous administration did. So the number one issue, even in the state of New Hampshire, where we have an unbelievably low unemployment rate, we've got a booming economy thanks to the policies of this president, is still immigration. So you have to remember that. Number two, Jean Shaheen and her colleague Maggie Hassan are going to vote in the United States Senate to remove a duly elected president of the United States, even though there was no underlying crime, there was no crime committed, all for political gain. That's a very scary thing in the state that Donald Trump lost by 1,700 votes in 2016, where they've now changed the voting laws that in the state of New Hampshire, I know this is a novelty, but you only get to vote in my home state if you're a resident of my home state. That Weird. wasn't the case three years ago in the 2016 election. Those laws have changed, which should ensure additional ballot integrity into the 2020 cycle. And I predict Donald Trump is going to win the state of New Hampshire in 2020. He's going to continue to expand the map. And if I'm on the ticket... I'll win with him, and that helps Cory Gardner. It helps John James in Michigan. It helps, it helps our races across the country to ensure we hold control of the U.S. Senate and keep point, appointing federal judges. You heard it here first. Corey Lewandowski expanding the map, bringing, uh, bringing the heat. I'd be nervous if I was Gina Shaheen. Corey, if you decide you want to run for the United States Senate, you better tell me first because I want to be at the announcement slapping you on the back and handing you one of your first checks because we absolutely need more of the fighting class in Washington. Learn more about my friend Corey Lewandowski at his website, StandWithCorey.com. Thanks for coming on, my friend. Thank you, Matt. Have a great new year. We'll be right back on the Sean Hannity Radio Show. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Welcome back to my mom's new favorite radio show. This is Congressman Matt Gates sitting in for Sean Hannity, and we are counting down the top 10 D.C. lies of the year, and we're down to number three. 
impeachment was a somber moment. That's what the Democrats told us. Play clip 19. As Speaker of the House, I solemnly and sadly opened the debate on the impeachment of the President of the United States. It's with profound sadness that I stand here today in support of these articles of impeachment. Sadly, I asked my colleagues, will you put your party over our country? I come to impeachment with deep sadness. I can only imagine in the Democrat House conference meeting when Nancy Pelosi stood up and said, well, I know bribery used to be the word of the day. I know that obstruction of justice used to be the word of the day, but sadness is is the new mantra. That is what we are going to deliver to the American people, our deep and abiding sadness. But there are always a few troublemakers in the group that don't follow directions. We're going to go in there. We're going to impeach the motherfuckers. This will sound political, but we cannot accept a, a second term for Donald Trump. I am not running for anything except the impeachment of Trump. <laughs> hey, everyone. I am on my way to the United States House floor <laughs> to impeach <laughs> President Trump. Article 1 is adopted. The question question is on adoption of Article 2. See, that last one, that last one, what's going on there is when they have the vote to impeach the president, they start clapping and applauding because ultimately impeachment has been their all-consuming obsession. It has been their bloodlust. It has been their total focus. So when they hit the moment, they applaud, and then Nancy Pelosi does this little, she looked like Dr. Evil when he was trying to shut up Austin Powers. That was the Nancy Pelosi hand wave of the House Democratic Caucus. But they didn't sound too sad to me when Maxine Waters was chanting impeach 45, when you had Rashida Tlaib saying stuff I'm not allowed to say on the radio. I did promise Sean if I got any FCC violations, I would match it with a donation to his favorite charity. So I'm, I'm not going to directly quote Rashida Tlaib. But, but that is really what has driven this. And it, there's also evidence that this was not a somber moment. This was the plan in Jerry Nadler's own effort to take over the House Judiciary Committee. In fact, it was the New York Times that reported that in Nadler's campaign to be the Democrat lead on the Judiciary Committee, he told folks that he would be the most experienced and the best to be able to manage a potential impeachment. This is what they wanted all along. And you know what? It's not just that they hate Trump. It's that they hate us and Trump's in the way. And so we're going to stand with our president with our commitment only intensified following this sham impeachment. But don't for a moment think that they're sad or somber about it. It was the number three Democratic lie of the year. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Look me up on Twitter, at Rep Matt Gates, on Facebook and YouTube. We'll be right back on the Sean Hannity Radio Show. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Radio Show. I'm Congressman Matt Gates, filling in for Sean today. We have been counting down the top 10 D.C. lies of 2019. They are that impeachment would be bipartisan. We obviously saw that wasn't true. That Trump committed bribery until they had no evidence of any bribery. Then they told us that Trump pressured the Ukraine, even though the president of the Ukraine and others said that that wasn't true, that that didn't happen. Then you had that the Steele dossier was critical to the, to the uh, Pfizer, that it wasn't critical to the Pfizer process when we in fact proved that it was. After that, shifts contact with the whistleblower. After that, this notion of criminal conspiracy with Russia that the Bidens did nothing wrong, and that Trump obstructed justice. And so that brings us to what I believe was the lie 
of 2019, and that is that the FBI did nothing wrong. We heard time and again from Jim Comey, from Jerry Nadler, from Adam Schiff, that the FBI acted exactly as we would have wanted them to. And now as a result of the Horowitz information, we know that the FBI had false information, that they knew the information was false, that they knew the information was provided by a liar in Christopher Steele, that they knew was a liar. And yet time and again, they went back to a secret court and did everything they could to get authorities to delegitimize and destabilize the duly elected president of the United States. And it, it wasn't just Democrats who were sticking up for the FBI in this time. It wasn't just the folks on the left. We even had my good friend and former colleague, now I guess uh, Fox News contributor Trey Gowdy, sticking up for the FBI. I am, I am even more convinced that the FBI did exactly what my fellow citizens would want them to do when they got the information they got, and that it has nothing to do with Donald Trump. No, Trey, they did not do exactly what they were supposed to do. If the FBI was doing exactly what they were supposed to do, they would have gone to Steele subsources and found out from Steele sources that the information that Steele presented wasn't true. They would have looked at the pleadings in the British courts where Steele was admitting to having lied to the FBI because he was sharing information with the media. If the FBI did everything they were supposed to do, they would not have had circular logic before a secret court where you've got a circumstance where <laughs> where they use a Yahoo News article written by Michael Isakoff to validate the dossier when it was, in fact, the very people associated with the dossier's construction who were the sources for the Isakoff story. So that type of tautology, that type of circular logic and self-actualizing uh, falsehood would really be counter to what the FBI is supposed to do. But don't just take my word for it. Listen in, listen in to Michael Horowitz the Obama-appointed inspector general. We found that investigators failed to meet their basic obligations of ensuring that the FISA applications were scrupulously accurate. We identified significant inaccuracies and omissions in each of the four applications, seven in the first application and a total of 17 by the final renewal application. There is a theory that the, the FISA scandal, the work of the FBI, I think, in contradiction to our rule of law, to our standards, to the Woods procedures, to our notions of due process, that that was going to be such a big scandal and really such a huge embarrassment for the Democrats and even some Republicans who had stood up for the FBI, that there had to be something new, some new distraction for the country. And thus we get this non-whistleblower whistleblower. We get this potential coordination with Schiff and ultimately this Ukraine impeachment that, that is not the crime. It's probably the cover-up. It's probably what folks on the left have tried to utilize so that we don't get to the business of resolving these fundamental issues so that we can trust our institutions. And I am sick and tired of folks on the left saying that it's Republicans who, oh, we're damaging our institutions. Look, we want to be able to trust our institutions. We are pro-law enforcement, and a vast majority of the people who work at the FBI are doing God's work. They're doing America's work. They're out there on the front lines making sure we're safer and more prosperous. But you had folks at the head shed who were not doing the right thing and who I think contributed to a degradation of our institutions. And no person knows that better than my next guest, my good friend, one of my mentors in the United States Congress, Louis Gomert. Louis, thanks for joining me. Hey, Matt, you're doing an awesome job. You're doing terrific. I learned from the master. And, of course, when, when it comes to guest hosting the Sean Hannity show, nobody does it like Louis Gohmert. Louis, why is it 
that we we really saw a change uh, in the FBI from an institution that I think most of us relied on, trusted, uh, to really a political operation? Well, I, that's Mueller, and that's where I give uh, most of the credit, because uh, he came in and people didn't really pay attention. I started grilling him when he'd come before judiciary on his five-year-up-or-out policy that he started. He wanted to get rid of people that had been there and were experienced and would hold people's feet to the fire. He didn't want anything but young yes people. And so he lost uh, thousands and thousands of years, ran them off. Uh, I had so many FBI agents say, you know, I wanted to stay in the FBI, but I had to either move to Washington and sit in a cubicle or get out. So I got out, and I'm making more money, but I really wished I could have stayed in the FBI, but I wasn't going to drag my family up to Washington. And so thousands of years of experience were lost, and I really think, Matt, that that contributed substantially to where you had people coming in there at the top who uh, – you know, they didn't want anybody crossing them. They felt like they ran everything, and actually they did. But the old gray hairs or no hairs were not there to say, look, this is not a good idea. This will hurt the institution. You can't do that. And that's Can we what save it, Louis? With, with the right oversight, with the right leadership, I mean, are we going to be able to restore trust and confidence? Only if enough people are punished for the abuses that went on. I, I think, you know, you and I have talked about it. What does that what does punishment enough. mean? I mean, does that mean heads roll in terms of people getting fired? Does that mean, you know, a letter of reprimand? Or do you think that there have to be charges brought against people who broke the law? There's got to be charges and there got to be uh, sentences uh, for people that have so abused and broken our system. And it can't be just one fall guy like Klein Smith. There were too many people, including Rosenstein, and I was berating him. You know, did you even read the application for a warrant to the FISA court before you signed that last one? Well, you don't understand. I I generally understood what was in it. The man didn't even read what he swore every word of was true. There's got to be consequences for that. I totally agree. We've got to do something about the FISA courts because they've gone three years. It took three years for them to, even one of them, to react. Well, you know, we're not real sure we were getting the best from our FBI, so... If people had done that in your court, Louie, you would have issued an order to show cause as to why they shouldn't be held in contempt. You know, I mean, that, you know, when the FISA court says, well, tell us more about what you think, that is not how a Judge Louie Gohmert would have behaved. You'd have been holding people in criminal contempt if they'd have done that in your courtroom. And and then to say, tell us how you're going to fix your own system where you used it to come lie to me or commit a fraud on the court? No, no, no. You don't ask them how they're going to fix it. You say uh, you're going to jail for fraud yeah, upon the that'd court. That'd be like that when the FBI it. learned Steele was a liar going back and saying, well, now that we know you're a liar, maybe will you tell us some truth? Well, thank you, Louie, for leading on that. i got to bring you back to, to the Texas because I know you got some Texans who uh, don't have dry eyes on the, on the pillow tonight as a consequence of the violence there. We've already seen the radical left reflexively revert uh, to their to their position on gun control, and they say that the real answer here is that we've got to deprive law-abiding citizens of access to their rights. Your response? Well, it, 
thank God for the people that had guns there. I couldn't believe how quickly uh, the the one uh, church member raised his weapon and fired so accurately. Uh, that's why there were only two killed. I mean, it, and and it, if you look at the state, probably California has the strictest gun control of any state. And they've had more mass shootings than any other place in the country. That should say it all. But, Matt, it goes back to what John Adams said, that this Constitution is intended for a moral and religious people, totally inadequate for the government of any other. Uh, if we're not going to teach kids what is right and wrong and that not every, everything is relative, there are absolute rights and wrongs, and not everybody's going to have a safe space and you're going to get along, and we're not going to be violent. And until we start getting back to that, then we're going to be in trouble, and there are going to be more and more efforts to take away constitutional rights because it only works for moral and religious people. And there are too many people that have taken others astray. You have heard it directly from Judge Gomert himself, my good friend and mentor in the Congress. He wants heads rolling at the FBI. He wants more transparency. Thank you so much for being on with me, Louie. Much appreciated. This is Congressman Matt Gates. I'll be back on Sean Hannity Radio. Welcome back to the Sean Hannity Radio Show. I'm Congressman Matt Gates, giving you my hot takes, filling in for Sean today. Very much enjoyed the experience. Thanks, Sean, for letting me come in and offer my thoughts on one of the last shows of the year. And as we move into 2020, we are reminded it is an election year and is an election that is of substantial consequence, not just for our country and the world, but for a populist movement that I believe gives us the best opportunity to restore the promise of our great country. In Washington, D.C., I noticed that we got two different kinds of Republicans. You got the Paul Ryan kind who fundamentally believe that the way to deal with the Trump presidency is just to manage it. It's sort of just to work your way through it. Well, you know, he'll sign our bills, so we've just kind of got to hold our nose in regards to some of the elements of the president we don't like. And then there is the Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, Sean Hannity, Matt Gates approach to the Trump presidency. And we want to seize this for the opportunity is. We know that in our lifetime, we may never get another chance to have a president who is so beholden to the American people and not the special interests that run Washington. My biggest disappointment about Washington, D.C. is that oftentimes it doesn't matter which political party has even won the election because both of them are working for the same special interests and the same hacks. It reminds me of, of one of the lines from uh, that TV show, The Wire. You know, everybody stays friends, everybody gets rich, nothing changes. And I don't want to see a Washington where nothing changes. And I am inspired by the change that Donald Trump brings to that town. And I am certain that we're going to be able to see it through for an additional four years. But I got to tell you, I'm a little surprised Joe Biden is still up in this Democratic primary. I mean, I thought by now the Venezuela wing of the Democratic Party would have already taken taken over and knighted one of their favorites like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. But Biden still remains on on top, despite the fact that he is a fundamentally weird man. I have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. We choose unity over division. We choose science over fiction. We choose truth over facts. If you agree with me, go to Joe. 30330 
and help me in this fight. No man has a right to raise a hand to a woman. And so we have to just change the culture, period, and keep punching at it and punching at it and punching at it. It will be a big... No, I really mean it. You know, I sit on the stand and it get hot. I got a lot of... I got hairy legs that turn... that, 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 that turn... Uh, um, blonde in the sun and the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again they look at it so I learned about roaches I learned about kids jumping on my lap and I've loved kids jumping on my lap if you are eating an early dinner I apologize for the Biden leg hair reference but I mean there's no way that dude beats Donald Trump. I mean I don't care what the what the pollsters or pundits say there is no way that somebody that, that's just that off is going to beat our president. A president who I think, you know, despite his flaws, my flaws, anybody's flaws, this is a guy who understands the the American people, the real America that I know that Sean fights for every day on this radio program and on his television show as well. But look Biden's up now, so we'll see. But I, I think that whether it's his collapse or somebody else coming coming to the top, I got a hard time believing it's Biden. And frankly, when you look at the seven people on the debate stage, I don't see a world in which any of them beat Trump because, one, they're not that interesting. Two, the country's – well, I guess when they are interesting, they're, they're talking about their leg hair at a pool and people jumping on their lap. Uh, they, they're, they're not – different. I mean, I think that you would see Biden especially as a candidate of the status quo, not somebody who can bring the type of reform and change that has our country so so inspired. And, and when you look at how the American people are doing with rising wages, with more confidence in their careers, with capital actually returning from overseas to come and fund the wages and dreams and aspirations of American workers, I think we got a lot to look forward to. And I think it's going to be a super exciting year in 2020. So, I would just conclude with this. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Look me up on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all the social media platforms. Not Bumble. Not on there yet. Maybe after the show. And let's stay inspired and enthusiastic. Let's be that bright light that we want others to see as we move forward with the America First agenda. Thank you all so much. It's been an honor to be with you. This is the Sean Hannity Radio Show. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Hopefully they'll have me back. This has been fun.